My name is Maximus Decimus Meridius. I am Iron Man. Hello, hello, and welcome back to the Post Credit Podcast. I am your host, Eric Italiano, senior writer at ProBible.com. And today, as always, well, <laughs> I don't know if I could say as always, considering we've taken off the last two months, but as <laughs> usual, <laughs> I am joined by my co-host, Kate Onder, who you can find writing about Video games extensively, Cade. Real quick, dude. Super proud of you. You've been crushing it these last few months. Hey, Donder, thanks. Writing about video games over at comicbook.com and also about 65% of the time, our co-host Brandon Katz, <laughs> who is doing things above my conception at Parrot Analytics. He's basically left Twitter, aka X. I, it feels like we've been so long that Twitter has changed to X in the in the time since. It's how, it's how you know society is crumbling, even more than it was before. So I would say it's great to see you guys. I only see Brandon. Cade recently built himself a gaming PC. So is that the one that you're using? And that's why I don't see you yet. Correct. I uh, do. I sound okay, by the way. Yep. Great. Okay. Um, yes, I don't have a webcam yet. Uh, I asked my work if they would send me one, and Paramount said they'll get on that. So Paramount, oh, yeah, this yeah. guy. <laughs> oh. I didn't even know you were in this Zoom, Cade, until we started talking. And like, I just as as you guys know, I just put it in the chat. I'm like, you're like a Zoom ghost. Where are you speaking from? I'm in the Matrix right now. That's, That's where I'm at. <laughs> Actually, I was fine with you not being on on camera but you putting it in that context has kind of fucked me up a little bit and now i don't know if i'm down with it anymore i'm in the ether i'm everywhere and nowhere at the same time so, so what's new boys Cade? what's going on with you what's new with work what's new with the gaming world tell us about the pc life not political correctness life the personal computer life Listen, if you guys heard of this thing called cancel culture, it's out of control. Uh, no, yeah, so I, it, I, I was on Joe Rogan last week. <laughs> you know, it's been so long. I've had a baby since we last spoke. No, I'm <laughs> um, <laughs> um, yeah, there's a lot going on in the gaming world. I don't really remember when the last time we talked, so I won't go all the way back. The, but like, just The last time week. we had a proper podcast was for Barbenheimer. Oh, right. Wow. It's yeah, been a long time. Like, right. Um, I would say... Uh, if we just want to talk about like this week and maybe even the last month because of some releases like right now, uh, this week there was a huge Xbox leak where Microsoft uh, had to submit a bunch of documents to the courts uh, over their FTC trial they had this summer. And, it, you know, probably should have been pretty straightforward for whoever was handling that, but they forgot to redact a bunch of documents. So <laughs> we know pretty much. Gosh, Probably. I hate when that happens. Yeah, <laughs> like, I love it. Yeah, I the reporter, really bad, but <laughs> it's super funny. <laughs> um, I mean, we know so much now. We know. I mean, like, it's all subject to change, and that's why they don't talk about these things until much closer to when they actually happen. But the next Xbox is slated for twenty twenty eight. We'll have new things going on with it that we don't quite understand yet. Um, there was a Fallout three remaster leaked, an Oblivion mm. remaster. Dishonored 3, a new Doom game, um, a wow. ton of other stuff. There's a new Xbox Series X, like, revised model coming out next year. Um, oh, yeah, that looks like a straight-up modem. Yeah, it looks interesting. That's a which, wild move. 
I don't understand because then the way it looks is like you can't lay it flat. It's kind of have to be straight up, which I mm, think is right. not great design uh, for, you know, a right. home entertainment center. Plus, as a super clumsy dude, I'm team flat. <laughs> so, all right. But, Kate, I will give you the floor to keep us updated on the gaming world in a bit. B, what's going on with you, pal? Life is busy, as evidenced by the the two week break, a uh, two month break for all of us. Um, I moved. Uh, you know, a lot of a lot of big life changes, but but things are going well. I'm excited to to be back on the microphone with you guys, though. Yeah, and you're speaking to us from Guantanamo. From a place I don't need to tell people. So Kate <laughs> is in the auditory void, where you're in like the visual void. <laughs> so if you guys combined, you'll be one real person. <laughs> I am in one of the 50 states of America. That's where I moved. <gasps> all right. So, all right. Uh, so, yeah, let me just address sort of what's going on with with the show. I gave a bit of an update on interview that I put up last week. B and Cade, I don't know if you tuned in to hear that or not. But the long and short of it is that Postgred Pod was always sort of something that the three of us, two of us, three of us, back and forth have done in the background of our real jobs. And the nature of careers are as i hope it is for the case of all of you out there is that they grow and they become harder and they become more exciting but more busy so with that being said b is uh, b i mean is there anything that you could touch on what you've been doing at work these last few months or i mean i'm at parrot analytics and long story short we use like our proprietary data and our industry insight to help guide uh you know studios companies uh talent production companies, all, all those things. I'm like, what to do? We make strategic recommendations. And so you could always find me putting out the monthly pair perspective deep dive essay, which always delves into like some pressing issue or trend uh, of the industry at the moment. And, you know, other than that, like talking to clients, reviewing data, look, look, looking at what are the major moves in the industry, what's hot, what's not, and why. So B is booked and busy, taking meetings, taking calls. He's got all that going down. My boy Cade, I see his video game coverage on comic book all the time as somebody who like dreads writing film reviews because of how long it takes. I could only imagine how long it takes to review games. Oh my so, God. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, Kate, I don't want to speak for you, but it certainly seems like you have sort of ramped up the weight and the breadth of the games that you take on at your job. Is that a fair take or? Yeah, I, I I just reviewed the Cyberpunk expansion, which being an expansion is shorter than the main game, but it's still, I mean, a, a decent time investment. I mean, I had that for about two and a half weeks, I think, and I just finished it this weekend and finished mm -hmm. my review. Uh, was today's Wednesday? I finished it Monday night, sent it for editing on Tuesday, edited it Tuesday night. I mean, I was up till very late and then i did an interview yesterday that i can't talk about ah, i'll tell you i'll tell you about it later but uh, <laughs> okay it'll it'll no drop. i'm not bummed for me i would just be like tease it go ahead yeah i i wish i mean yeah i can't really say anything um hey, one but, of my bosses who's a, a huge gamer uh occasionally reads your reviews i found that oh, really? organically yeah over the last there couple you go. Of yeah. It is always very strange when I do hear that from people I don't know. There's like, oh, I've seen your reviews. I'm like, that's <laughs> odd. Like, I, I'm, I'm happy, but like at the same time, it's like there are people watching me that I don't. Yeah, know. well, that's what you get when you <laughs> exist in uh, the void. 
<laughs> but also, yeah. he, he's from New Zealand, so that that really confirms that you're global, Cade. I'm oh, global, wow. Mister Worldwide. <laughs> so, so that's being Cade. As for myself, so I think that while those are all legit reasons as to why the show is taking a break, I don't think that those are either of the two big ones. The large one being that it's my fault. I have. I don't want to say lazy because I've been focusing focusing my attentions on other places but it is you know i am the producer of the show it is on me to book us and get us going and i've just not been doing that because i and i'm not trying to like pitch here i've been trying to write my own script as most of you out there know it unsurprisingly takes a fuckload of time <laughs> um, but i did it, I did it. It's, for for how long yeah. that usually takes and it sounds well, like based so- on the feedback you posted it's pretty good yeah, so I started. I, I can attest it is good. Awesome. I started writing it. I started taking like I started to like get my ducks in a row when the year started. But I started to genuinely write it. I think in I want to say March or April, and then I probably finished it by July. And I've spent the last six weeks or so applying to contests, sharing it with people, and then taking that feedback and then trying to make it into the best product that it can be. But I'm already, I've already got the itch to move on to the next thing, which gives me hope that maybe I have actually struck oil and and I'm not just out here digging yeah. holes for no reason. <laughs> <laughs> so we will see. And but then the second reason I think, and this is key here. Sorry, there's two more. One of which is of course there's the strikes going on. So there has been a less, you know, films have been pushed back. The interviews that usually provide a basis for these show have seated but i think the number one reason why we have been podcasting less is because when this show was originally conceived there was some sort of mainline blue chip franchise ip to cover every single week this was back in 2020 the year is now 2023 that has changed a lot people kate you put up a hilarious tweet being like I am free of the shackles of Disney Plus. I have no desire to watch the newest Star Wars show. And that is and that is how I felt too. And I think that that is a general cultural vibe right now. So so all those things combined have led to us 2 months off. So now that we've all caught up, let's get into what we usually do on the show and discuss the entertainment world. The strikes are ongoing, but it seems like we might finally be at an end, the Writers Guild met today with the AMPTP CEOs such as Bob Iger, David Zasloff, Ted Sarandos, and Brandon's girl, Donna Langley, were in, uh, I don't know if they were in attendance or present on the call, whatever that means. The writing strike started in May. The actor strike started in July. We've seen films. I think Dune 2 is the most notable one to get pushed back. This is this is a fucking layup for B. What is going on with the business right now? And are the producers reaching a point where they have to give in? What, what is it going to take for some wheels to turn here? I can't comment on that publicly. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm not uh, allowed to. What I can say is that I am going to uh, Canada on Tuesday to give a conference speech about what happens to content during a strike. So as much as I very much want with everybody else for them to reach an agreement, if they could just wait like three more days, that would be appreciated. <laughs> that's, that's, all right, that's well, all. Is there a way that I could frame this that you can talk on? I, I can on talk about like, what happens to like, content. Sure, yeah. Yeah, I mean, just, just essentially, should this strike 
continue for much longer. And and I'm not super optimistic that an end is in sight just yet. On uh, both sides? Yeah, on both sides. I think, you know, what you'll see is a rise, uh, once again, in unscripted content, which we saw during production shutdowns uh, uh, during the pandemic, which we saw during production shutdowns of the writer's strike in 2007 and 2008. And you'll see a greater emphasis on uh, non-U.S. content. So that can be everything from Canadian, U.K. and Australian. So other Anglophone countries. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, but English speaking countries. Or it could be, you know, the continuous- you mean the white people. <laughs> English speaking specifically. Or it could mean, you know, the continued emphasis, which has been building over the last several several years, South Korean content, Japanese content, you know, uh, uh, Indian content, etc. Uh, what we do know is that despite Squid Game, that is still the exception to the rule. Non-English mm. content still doesn't reach those same heights, rarely, if ever, in America. But we do know that non-English content still has been on a, a, a gradual, steady rise, even if most of them fail to hit those kind of top 10 lists wow that was such a line you being like i can't comment what a fucking big shot we've got in the podcast now yeah, no, i did only, not expect that it's merely because we 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 work with people on both sides of the the strike and so it's not a why do you right of course of course uh, no, no no i think it's dope Fuck but i also NBA. think let's do this yeah. <laughs> but i think it's very funny yeah right Please leroy jenkins bills. i don't son why do you think Dune is the only major one to relent? I know that Challengers bumped as well, but those are kind of the only two so far, right? Like, what are the... And again, if you cannot speak on this, go ahead. But Let's what do see. you think... The next what? one, logically, if we're looking at the schedule, would be the Hunger Games prequel, because it, it's it's slated to come out two or three weeks after the original Dune 2 uh, replacement. So if that one... Craven moves, bailed as well. Crave, yep, Craven, good call. Um, And so, you know, we, we've already had a couple biggies. Maybe there will be more. As of right now, we we know, obviously, studios would prefer to get their product out there and hopefully make some money in what is becoming a less competitive end-of-year slate. But, you know, they have to do the cost-benefit analysis because without the stars going on the, the marketing rounds and plugging that film, it can be difficult. Do you think that because Hollywood, much like us, this is generally their quiet dead time anyway, right? February, August, although those stereotypes have kind of changed, that is generally when things are all quiet on the LA front. Do you think the performance of the creator, Saw X and Expendables 4 might be sort of a linchpin here as the fall season is in our sight? I actually don't. I, I think... You know, typically the fall season is pretty healthy for like Oscar contenders, which are already, you know, moving or in some like Netflix cases sticking because obviously it's not quite as important uh, in terms of like the, the the star related marketing. And I think you still have essentially the holiday seasons of, of Thanksgiving and Christmas, which has still been pretty darn uh, uh, rewarding to films historically, particularly in the blockbuster era. No, of, but like, my point is that they have, I don't know if they've had a true acid test of the effect uh, uh, that the strike is going to have on a film. I I really don't think it's going to make a difference. I think they're really just focusing on like, can we get a deal done and get our our stars back to marketing? And even if they do well or if they don't do well, you know, it's like we, we, we hear reports all the time, like certain studios on certain movies are locked in. They're like, we're not moving. I don't care. And some are still waffling. So I think obviously the industry would like to see these films do well, but I don't think it's really going to sway anybody one way or the other beyond what's already percolating internally at those companies. 
All right, that is what's going on with the strikes. Now let's swing over to what is going on in the video game world. We touched on this a bit at the top. Cade has been reviewing nonstop games. I have heard from people online that this is one of the greatest gaming years of all time. So I want to touch on both of those things. First, I want to talk about Starfield. Starfield is another reason why we have not done this show. I've told you both, this is a game that I've been waiting for my whole life. To me, I, I, Cade put a word to it, but I play games to like fantasize. Like I play games to be Batman or to be in space or to be like a soccer player and stuff like that. So the idea of Starfield is the most purest uncut version of that. It is hailing from one of the more iconic studios of the last 25 years, certainly of Cade's life. I'd say them and Rockstar are probably like, you know, the two name brands in this space. So, Kate, I would love if you can contextualize the success of Starfield, both in terms of its sales and its sheer achievements as a game itself. Because me personally, real quick, like while there are, of course, things I wish were tweaked, it represents the ultimate ideal of what gaming is. And that is like transporting yourself to another life and another world. And in that sense, Starfield to me is a home run. So tell us about the business side and just the pure gaming side of this game. Yeah, it's obviously really important because Xbox paid $7 billion for Bethesda and all of its uh, accompanying studios um, several years ago. And with that, everyone knew Bethesda's first big game under Xbox would be Starfield. And if it had been the Elder Scrolls Six or a new Fallout, would have been like easy slam dunk. But Starfield was unproven ground for them. They were doing something completely different. Even though it, you know, is formulaically like Fallout and Elder Scrolls, it is a new world. You have a thousand planets to go to. You have um, space travel and all these other things. It is very different from those other two games. Well, but don't you think space is a more? But don't you think space is a more widely accessible genre than sort of a deep lore? Okay. Yeah, I would say. Yes, you're right. It is very accessible, but it we saw No Man's Sky, right? That was a fucking Mm. disaster initially. I mean, it's way better now. It's a great game now. It's fantastic. But um, because of how vast it is and how much there is to do and the... Uh, I think the expectations of Bethesda RPG with do anything, go anywhere, be anyone. Then you put that in outer space. It's like, that's crazy. And thankfully, you know, they, within reason, they have pulled that off. Um, You know, there are some people who have their issues with it or whatever, but I really like it. You seem to really love it. Um, I, I, well, cause I get the complaints about the lack of like, planetary travel and the amount of like loading screens and all that but like dog think about what they're trying to pull off (laughs) like come on video games are still made by people right like these are and they exist in a fucking (laughs) foot long box what are we talking about here like Starfield is like such a cool concept that it's like penetrated my bubble where i'm like yeah i don't game at all but that sounds dope open world galaxy like i've been talking about it with a lot of people and I think yeah. speaking to the business side, that is what Bethesda does. They make these like once in a generation games now where people are like, 
I know you may not know who they are, but you've certainly you're familiar with their style and and their ambitions and what they can pull off. And so whenever they put something out, it reaches a very broad audience. I know people who bought Xboxes just to play this game. I would have had I not gotten one sent to me through some kind of crazy PR scam like a year ago. <laughs> I told I think I said on the show. Yeah, I even buying one. Yeah. I kind of feel the same way about PS5 and Spider-Man 2, but that's a different yeah. conversation. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and the game is very accessible, not just from, like you said, space and all that, but it's through Game Pass. If you have an Xbox mm. and 20 bucks, you can play it. And I mm. encouraged my brother to do that, but he was like, I don't play enough games to actually subscribe to something. But I was like, that's fair. And uh, uh, so far, it has achieved 10 million players. We don't know what that means for sales. Xbox mm-hmm. is so different with how it, people try to be like, well, the game's a flop because uh, it didn't sell X amount of copies. Like they, they are on such a completely different business model that you can't you can't talk about it like they do with PS5. It, it's, it's very uh, new, I think. And so it'll be a while before we really understand what is a failure and what's a success. But... This, I think, is a universal success, easy to say, um, will be a game of the year. Well, is this one of those games where what it is now is nowhere near what it'll be in six months to a year? Like, are they going to give us a dirt bike to to ride on these moons? Are they going to be tweaking things as they go along to that extent? Or is the framework in place and that's kind of that? Um, It's so hard to say because Bethesda, like... With Fallout 4, that was their last game. And that was a game that they supported pretty, pretty wow, well. Wow, holy shit. Yeah. What was that, 2015? Oh, yeah. my God. Long time, long time. Um, That was their last. They had Fallout 76 in between, but that's kind of like another studio that they collaborated with. It doesn't, mm. doesn't count. Um, So it's hard to say because they've been really vague about what the future looks like. They did say recently, they're like, we're going to support this game for years to come. And I was like, what does that mean? Cause this is not a, an online game, right? Usually if there's an online game, you expect there to be 400 million different updates and expansions or whatever. They have said there will be one expansion that they have already named. I don't know the name of it off the top of my head. And I would imagine what you said. I, there's been a lot of vocal criticism about not, having vehicles i think that's something they will add yeah because i just feel like in terms of exploring that is a huge roadblock like that to me and it's not something that i'm going to let ruin my experience of the game when i land somewhere and i look off through my like scanner and see how far i have to run i'm like oh fuck you know like that and it's like it, it prevents me from just like I saw somebody tweet or it was a review. It might have been is Gene Park the Post. yeah, okay. And he was like one of the most staggering moments of my game was when I was on some moon and I ran into some like space dinosaur thing. And the the slowness of Kate, I'm sure there's a word for it, but like earthbound travel is to me a huge blockade yeah. of this game tapping into the no man's sky-ness of it as well, where you could just fucking coast around forever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, like, people criticized Red Dead Redemption 2 when that came out because they're like, I can't fast travel. Like, very, you, had, you could only go from town to town, and you right. had to be in the town to fast travel, unlike the first right. game where you could open your campfire and just go wherever. And the, the reason was that they're like, we built a fucking world for you. There's shit going on. And if you're just skipping between towns 
you're not going to see anything in between. You're going to miss most of the game. So like there is, you know, a good defense there, but I don't think Starfield has enough in that empty space. And I do think another thing is if Bethesda doesn't support it with big updates, which I I don't think anyone necessarily expects. Don't say mods. Don't fucking say mods. I'm going to be so annoyed. But Uh, isn't that only a PC thing? No. Uh, oh, interesting. Okay, they, never mind. Go ahead. They, Go ahead. Uh, Permission to speak. <laughs> with Skyrim and Fallout uh, on Xbox One, they added mods. I'm not sure if they've confirmed console mods for Starfield, but I mean, I have to, especially since it's an Xbox studio. You know, they're going to be like, you're pushing that right. shit. We're getting that out there. Um, So they'll definitely do that. There's you know some limitations with that on console you know they don't want to break your fucking machine unlike pc where like the risk is yours you know to take on but um i'm sure you'll be able to have things are you telling me if you don't have the right rig your shit will start smoking i wouldn't say that but i mean it will wouldn't be good (laughs) (laughs) Uh, i've seen some crazy videos of people spawning in like a hundred thousand sandwiches and their computer just crashes like (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so didn't some guy like I will say, all the potatoes yeah oh, no the one will. that i saw or that one was the person who dropped all the milk cartons in space and like swam yeah. through them <laughs> yeah. i mean but those are the type of things that like those are the sort of like gaming physics achievements that i can't even wrap my fucking head around you know like that yeah. is to me that's like magic like i don't understand what the fact that they've one to zero is firing that quickly no, to like way. figure that shit out is fucking nuts to me, dude. I write about this stuff and I have for almost 10 years and I still don't understand how a video game <laughs> is made. It's it's fucking black magic. I don't get it. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So, Kate. Like 11? Uh, yeah. Uh, since I was 14. Damn, or 13, 13, 14. All right, so Cade, if, if that's all that you've got for Starfield, then I would love to hear your thoughts. And this is not just like one viral tweet that blew up. I've yeah. seen multiple people say that this is one of, if not the greatest gaming year of all time. Can you tell us what exactly the parameters of that is and if it's true or not? I think it is it is true. I mean, what you look for is consistent releases right you want something to always be playing um that way whether it's because you always have a new game to look forward to uh, or you know maybe you don't play everything every week but every month there may be something new for you to jump to there there, there's a variety there's a diversity in all these games i mean this year alone we've had hogwarts legacy star wars jedi survivor tears of the kingdom uh final fantasy resident evil 4 dead space uh spider-man 2 starfield Assassin's Creed, Alan Wake, Call of Duty, and Avatar. And those yeah. are just the ones wow. I can name off the top of my head. So And B, my man B, I could just see the wheels in his brain turning. <laughs> <laughs> Video games and, and like their role in transmedia storytelling is such a common topic of conversation in my job. So it's like I, I've learned, I, even though I don't game, I've learned so much more about the industry over the last uh, year and like what its place is in lifestyle and entertainment media. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, if you see those charts of like video game sales versus film sales, you do like a double take. You're like, wait, what? Video games are 180 billion plus global market, and the the biggest box office year 2019 globally or 2018 was 42.5 billion. Yeah, it's crazy. not even a so comparison. Insane. 
So, Cave, go ahead. Consistency yeah. and quality, obviously. I mean, there have been years with big games, but everyone forgot those years because the games fucking sucked, like, or, or like, just didn't meet the standard. I mean, there, like, 2015 probably should have been a pretty big year for games. You had a new Halo game. You had Arkham Knight, baby. Arkham Knight. Uh, what, The Witcher 3. There was another one that disappointed that year. I just haven't tipped my tongue. I don't remember it. But, uh, oh, Star Fallout Wars 3. 1 and Fallout 4 um oh four sorry yeah and so like some of those games were great and then games like battlefront were like oh you know like that's not what we want <laughs> and it was a problem but um yeah i would say 2023 is like definitely up there i mean some of the game greatest years for gaming in my opinion 2008 uh 2007 both those years had like fallout 3 Assassin's Creed 1, Call of Duty 4, Halo 3, Grand Theft Auto 4, great games like that. And then like 2010, 2018, um, across those years, Red Dead Redemption 1, Red Dead Redemption 2, Black Ops 1, Fallout New Vegas, all these great games. Um, and we're looking. No, but at- it's all modern years. No one's like 97. I'm sure like someone older than me would say that, but like, you know, I only have such a frame of reference, like 2000 onwards is my, my, right. you know, cause that's when I was yeah. born, but anything before that, like, I don't really fucking know. All right. Let's do. take a quick break. And when we come back, Brandon and I will be talking about Ahsoka. All right. And we are back. We are talking about Ahsoka, not a episode specifically because we're six episodes into a eight episode long season but because i finally caught up this weekend because brandon is our resident star wars fan nerd expert whatever you want to put it i thought that we would just catch up on what's going on with the show and the star wars universe at large these days so first i want to start off super simple b let's rank our star wars shows that have come out so far so i'm gonna cheat a little bit right i'm gonna go andor Mando season one and two, <laughs> Obi Wan, Ahsoka, Mando season three. Ah, actually, you know what? Boba Fett and Mando season three are kind of tied. This is a sort of very backhanded way of me saying I have been enjoying the show, which is not really something that I expected considering my struggles getting into the animated Filoni verse, considering the way that this show seems to be tailored to fans who had already dove into that content. Um, considering the general apathy that is being felt towards star Wars and Marvel content. But I do find myself, I don't want to give it the, cause you know, this is my line, right? Feel the star Wars magic. But when that robot said a long, long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, I was like, yeah, yeah. So we will because, yeah, that's right up our fucking alley. So we will get to that. First, I would like you to rank your Star Wars show so far. All right. Well, if we're doing it like that and we're cheating like that, I'm doing Andor. Well, I was going to tell you that, but I was like, is this too complicated? (laughs) If we're gonna get like that, Graham, I'm gonna do Ando, uh, Ando, <laughs> Ando, <laughs> Andor, which is which is not only the best thing that Disney Plus has ever done, but one of the best shows of 2022. Period. Um, so I'm doing Andor, Mando season two, uh, Obi Wan, Mando season one, Mando season three, 
uh, Boba Fett, and I'm not going to rank Ahsoka until it's over. Yeah, and that's fair, and I get that, and I think that that's a fascinating take for somebody who is aware of the character and sort of the lore behind this show, but I will say that when I, because the only way that I have experienced Filoni content is through a structure that was, if not previously existing, not his. Whereas Ahsoka and Clone Wars and Rebels, those are his babies, right? Like, this is, you know, his magnum opus in the star wars world and something that really struck me as i watched this was that if you combined the strengths of filoni and tony gilroy you would have the perfect star wars show film whatever you wanted right because filoni focuses and excels on the star part right you could feel his sort of his creative soul just screaming like Look at how cool and fun all this shit is. We've got time travel and interdimensional warfare and lightsabers and Jedi. Like he's a Star Wars fan and Gilroy couldn't care less. Right. And just to give like an example of that. And as we touched on him figuring out an unironic way to deliver the line in universe a long, long time ago in a galaxy far, far away in both a meta and a pathos heavy manner that's mastery right there that is not an easy thing to let fly and despite the fact that i have no previous experience with that droid hung hung yang who yang I don't, yeah, I don't remember him from from animated things, but he's been killing. It's, season. It still gives you that sort of like hair raising on your arms feeling of like this is storytelling in its ultimate form. When they're able to sort of metatextualize its impact on culture to such an extent that the characters within that world are saying it to dramatic effect, like that's unbelievable. Referentials usually douchey, and this nailed it. Nailed it. And I, so I, I think... do want to say after episode five, I like in my media chat my, with, with some other Star Wars nerds, I, I said, I was like, it'd be really cool if they open the next one with a long time ago in a galaxy even further away, since it's it's the first time in canon, to my knowledge, that they're actually leaving the, right. the galaxy far, far away. So like, obviously, I wasn't 100% right, but I'm, I'm still taking like 1% credit. Yeah, for, like, I knew they were going to work that in there. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And that and that, of course, is sort of a... um franchise and lore expanding topic that I'm not quite prepared to touch on right now. Like, I don't think that I have the hard sci-fi knowledge to dive into what a new Star Wars galaxy actually means. But just to get back to my point, if you were to combine Filoni and Gilroy Strength. So Filoni, he excels at the star part. This is all fun and dope. Whereas Gilroy, he zooms in on the wars part. And whereas Filoni's like, look how fun this shit is. Gilroy is like, look how much this shit sucks. (laughs) And and again, to give you a sort of in-universe example of this, we just geeked out over Dave figuring out a way to work in the iconic Star Wars line into the show itself, right? Gilroy, and this is something that I told to Andy Serkis when we spoke, I'd argue one of the greatest moments in the history of Star Wars is when Kino Loy finally relents to Andor and joins his side and becomes a quote-unquote rebel and says, never more than 12. How many guards on each level? Three. 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 Three.
more than 12. And they cut to black, right? Mm. And it's totally out of context. Mm. And what it is at its core is factual exposition. He's telling you how many guards are on each floor. But the absolute mastery of writing and dramatic heft makes that one of the best lines in the history of Star Wars. So I just found, yeah, so I just, I can't help but find myself thinking like, why can't they figure out a way to meld these two? Because they really do need to, in my opinion, for the for the betterment of the entire franchise. Because when you only have people who are in love and beholden to the legacy and lore of the franchise, it can com- become far too insular, uh, circle the same drain, and become far too, you know, self-reliant and self-referential to expand into new territory. And then when you have only people who aren't fans of the material and are you know, largely kind of, you know, snobby about the the kind of in-universe things, then you can occasionally, most actually most of the time, Tony Gilroy is really the only exception, you most of the time get a product that feels ashamed of, of its origins and you don't get that that love and that same feeling. So combining both, it's like I, Tony Gilroy has said he doesn't want to work on Star Wars again after Andor, which is a shame because I would have loved to have seen him and Filoni write one thing together. I don't even care if it's like a seven minute short that goes up on Disney plus would have been oh amazing. Right. So B uh, the inverse of me. Well, I've not, I've tried time and time again. I just can't get into clone wars. And then therefore I have not tried rebels. You have. So there's a lot for me that works and does not work as from a quote unquote outsider point of view, but as an insider, as someone who knows and loves this stuff, what has worked for you so far and what is not. Yeah, I think I'm honestly going to talk about this through the lens of episode five, which was the flashback episode of The World Between Worlds, because I honestly think that episode had high highs and low lows, and that encapsulates exactly how I feel about Ahsoka overall, which I think has been very uneven in quality, it delivered moments of greatness and moments of great frustration. So on, on one hand, you know, I look at episode five and the season as a whole, and I think it's the most beautiful episode and and series of blockbuster tv in a long time i think it looks even better than andor which looked fantastic and still there are moments when the volume can be limiting but truly you know industrial light magic they they just don't really miss their their effects and their ability to transport you are incredible i think they've done they've done a great job here i think they executed those, those flashbacks visually really really well and I think episode five was important because finally it represented some internal conflict for Ahsoka that was actually really interesting. And we're going to get to Ahsoka's characterization a little bit more in a, in, a, in a further question. But I think it was really important to show her deep-seated fears over what she is, you know, at her core, what she thinks of herself, if Anakin is the one who shaped her, you know? She is wrestling with his legacy. And to do that, it also means confronting the worst parts of herself that she inherited from him, that she adopted from him. And so that presents her with, with with a choice. She has to choose which direction to go. And essentially, she makes the choice to succeed where he failed in seeing the big picture and not just being a warrior and using her strength for something more uh, metaphysical and, and conceptual than, than Anakin did. And that choice then has to trickle down to the, to the rest of her orbit in order to cement like actual tangible change. So it has to affect the other characters. And I think that's really beautiful to kind of 
graph that onto her journey and the, the character we knew once upon a time in animation. Uh, beyond that, I think the lightsaber fights have been incredible. Balin is the most morally gray and interesting character. The theme of stories and narratives that we tell ourselves to justify or even dissuade our actual actions is really good. But then on the other hand, I am someone who who loves who loves Clone Wars and Rebels, but even I think that like a it's got to be really hard for for audiences who aren't familiar with Clone Wars and Rebels to latch onto this and b sometimes even with my prior existing knowledge, it's hard to root for these characters who are acting like they're not real people. You know, when Ahsoka's in the world between worlds, she's been there before in Rebels, but she doesn't ask a single question. She doesn't question, hey, like Anakin, like, how are you here? What what are you doing? What's going on? Like, how am I here again? Why is the war world between worlds operating differently than the time I was here in Rebels? And I think that's I think it's unnatural and it leaves both like familiar and unfamiliar audiences completely in the dark. It's a great opportunity that they miss for some much needed information. And that information can actually expand like mainstream force mythology and lore in a cool way. And it can use the characters as an organic conduit. And that's like really been something that's missing throughout uh, uh, Ahsoka because I think almost every character is acting in like an irrational way that doesn't make sense and is kind of there to set up the next plot point and I think when when you start on a note where like hey we have to find a map just like we did in Force Awakens and Last Jedi and then we got to talk to the guy which has been a complaint about the other Star Wars series to start on that note and then to have the characters acting irrationally or characters not having any conflict at all which again we'll, we'll get to in a second it makes for this hodgepodge of quality in which I want to invest more, but the writing has prevented me from doing so. Uh, and then there's times where I'm like, wow, this 20 minute stretch or, or, or this particular scene is some of the best Star Wars in recent memory. So overall, I think episodes four through six have been pretty solid to pretty damn good. Even with my issues, I think we're on an upward trajectory for heading into the home stretch. And I think episode six, this week's episode, was my favorite of the season. But overall, I think it's fine. And it's not, and it has a chance to elevate beyond fine. But I have yet to be fully convinced and converted to Filoni as a live action shepherd of the entire Star Wars universe. You know, it's funny that despite the fact that you and I come from two sides, you having seen the show, I not we both kind of feel the same way and the best way that i could boil it down into like a simple analogy is we see the beauty of his swing right but sometimes he's just not connecting and i could apply that theory to a lot of points of this show so i want to start with as somebody who is not steeped in the Filoniverse lore, I think that the series has worked best when it is a race against the clock for the two sides of the Force, right? Like, I love the idea of the Rebels achieving their goal also helps the Empire accomplish theirs. Exactly. And sort of the ticking time bomb, but also like chess-like strategy that that narrative structure allows for. I also love when they focus on her Anakin guilt, not her Anakin um, memories, but the present day feelings that she has from those. So while you might say, but the flashback is to fill you in on that, I'd say, then have that be episode one. If you're trying to catch me up, then do it first thing. So that's one thing that works for me. 
One more thing is the lore expansion, especially in the context of like coming off Andor, which is very stripped down, pared back, real world, gritty. The expansion of the lore and the witches and all that stuff is sick. But as you pointed out, I think they don't fill in the blanks enough. They're just like, hey, here's these witches and these whales. And the same could be said about the reunion between Ezra and Sabine. They just kind of throw it at you, which is all to say that I don't really, I understand why I should care, but I don't. Yeah, I I think I want to make two points to respond to that because I think a, like with Ahsoka and her guilt, I, I, I agree completely. I think one reason Ahsoka felt so flat as a character prior to episode five is that she was written as this super competent, wizened, capable badass who's seen it all. There was nothing in those first four episodes that, that she couldn't really do. And we didn't really get any sense of an internal struggle to, to latch onto. She just was like, oh yeah, I'll handle it. Don't worry. And so I think episode five does help to bridge that gap between old Ahsoka and new Ahsoka. It lets us in on the burden she's been carrying around and sets her on a new direction. I'm like, okay, finally, that is actually compelling character drama. Whereas before the the main character was one of the least interesting parts of the entire show. I do think though, episode five also resolved things in a much too tidy way. She essentially, you know, there's nothing new about a character reliving past experiences to set themselves up for a new journey. And that's okay. I'm okay with that. But I also think reckoning with your genocidal big brother, pseudo father figure master in, you know, 20 minutes is neat, way too neat for the sense. But that's what but that's what bothers me about it. Right. Because it used these flashbacks and I get that it's her show, but it used these flashbacks to analyze where she needs to go and not what got her here. Like it shows you, but it doesn't. It, it it doesn't explain it. Like I don't I don't understand the relationship between those two based on episode five. The only reason I do is from talking to you and desperately trying to get into Clone Wars. So had they used those flashbacks instead to speak on the person that she is now as a result of those perceived failings. Instead of where those lessons should guide her, I think that that would have been the stronger way to 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 use the Anakin flashbacks to tell us who she is, yeah. not where not where she should go. No, I, I we're saying the same thing because I think there's actually not just from a storytelling standpoint, there's a strategic error here. What you're saying in the context you need, most people are going to YouTube to find. You're like, you know, let me get like one of those recap videos or anything. And so that was potential viewership that Disney Plus essentially seeded to a rival platform instead of having themselves. Why don't they have in front of the first episode a 90-second uh, montage? Of no, no, no. Why? Why? No, why? Exactly. Why? They, they no, no. make one. I want you to tell us why. Why Why do you think? There, There is no explainable reason. They allowed... <laughs> viewership and attention to leak to a rival platform when they could have had they could have put a 90 second to to two minute animated you know clip recap i would have watched a five ten minute recap and they could have even uploaded their own like video on on disney plus but if it's disconnected from the series i can see how like like oh maybe not everyone would watch it but still they should have they they have um 
they have a, a collection of episodes that are the most important from like Filoni's leading into Ahsoka, but they don't have good placement for it. And frankly, they could have had a, a two minute, you know, before the first episode. And then even though each live action episode has a previously on of the live action, why not slip in 10, 15 seconds of the animated thing to continue filling in those pieces and making sure that the people who are watching Ahsoka are getting that context. It, it is a strategic... Because I think that they want to silo off animated fans and live fans. I think that they don't want certain... But Filoni certain stand for that anim- as the animated master. Yeah, but then it's on him. Right? I think it is. Okay. All right. I, then there we I, go. Just, <laughs> all right. Then there we go. I, I love Filoni, but I, I just have not, across all three, uh, the three or four series that he's been involved in, I just haven't been blown away by his live action work. Right. Okay. So then two more quick things that work for me, and then we'll get to why they don't. I love the feeling of Thrawn being a proper Vader successor. He feels wholly different yet almost equally as threatening kylo ren adam driver is widely considered to be one of the best actors out there right now this is not a slight on him kylo ren had too much of an angsty teen i'm gonna rebel against my parents vibe to him whereas thrawn feels like he's like all right we lost here's how we win now whereas kylo was like I'm so mad about my dad and my uncle. And so that's one thing that works for me. B, as you touched on, Ray Stevenson's Balin Skull is a fascinating character. He seems to be the awesome. first person in Star Wars to ever ask, wait a minute, what role do us Jedi play at all well, this Well, year? Luke in The Last Jedi acknowledged, like, oh, we fought. But Luke remains a Jedi. Yeah, but, like, you know, I, he was always going to... Technically, he didn't because he left and, like, disconnected for years. But, but he... he, he it's one thing to like exile yourself. It's another to act on your new belief core. Whereas Balin becomes so disillusioned by the Jedi way that he not only fucks off, he sticks around and says, I'm going to fuck your shit up to that point. You know, his whole, I'm not going to stop the wheel. I'm going to break the wheel vibe makes him to me, the type of anti-hero anti-villain that Lucasfilm wishes Boba Fett was. Yeah, R.I.P. Ray Stevenson, because you're the best actor in the show and you're the best character. Yeah. As for things that have not worked for me as somebody who has not watched Clone Wars and Rebels, and we've touched on this a bit, the Anakin stuff just does not work for me. I find it lowest common denominator nostalgia porn. For the fact of everything that I just said, I, I would have rather it informed us of who she is instead of where she needs to go. B? Well, I think she, we need to know where she needs to go, though. Otherwise, there is no... But like, we do that. know where she needs to go. She needs to defeat the bad guys. This is fucking rocket science. Of course, she's got to fucking accept Sabine and her flaws, and she's got to defeat Thrawn, and that's it. But she needed something to overcome in the midst of that, or else it would have been a continued boring character. But like the reason I disagree is because... I think having Anakin appear in Ahsoka makes as much sense and is as an appropriate of a fit as having appear in Obi-Wan. Like we've been talking about, though, my opinion is informed by being a Clone Wars Rebels fan. Ahsoka doesn't offer, as we've, again, completely agree on, it doesn't offer much in the way of reestablishing how integral their relationship was for Star Wars fans who who aren't familiar with their deep and, and detailed backstory. Because Clone Wars Anakin is by far the best Anakin, the best version that we ever see in all Star Wars media. And you cannot tell an Ahsoka story without him to a degree. They are so intertwined and so important to one another. 
So I think it makes complete sense, particularly since this is essentially a sequel to Rebels. But again, it, it's Filoni's playing it very insular, very inside baseball. And they haven't done a great job of expanding that to other people, uh, you know, to all walks of fandoms. And I I, I think I, I had this note for back when you were talking about like the lore expansion. Like it's been a lot of fun homework for Ahsoka, but it's homework nonetheless. And we are seeing the seams in a sprawling, interconnected stories. And we're seeing the limitations that that has. And it's once again a reminder of how rad and self-contained Andor was. We don't have as much time as I thought we we were going to have, but I do want to touch on this quickly. One more thing that I rub up against is the Purgil, which sort of ties into everything that we've been talking about. I understand like why they could and should be cool. Star Wars is weird. Sci-fi is weird. Interdimensional fucking whales is cool and fun. But they don't, do you agree with me that they don't put in the legwork to explain why Ahsoka standing on her ship amongst these flies? Like, it feels like the store brand package version of like, here's Star Wars without giving me the meat and potatoes of why I should give a shit. Did you ever watch uh, Avatar The Last Airbender? No, I've tried as well with that. It's great. You should just start with season two if you've tried. Just go to season two. Oh, okay. Because okay. Toph comes and it's great. But uh, long story short, there's like a giant mythical animal that like saves the day. It's a lion turtle and like helps Aang, our hero, on 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 give him like superpowers. And it's, it's you know, I think it's just one of those things where I'm like, I, I don't care and I'm fine with it. I just, and I don't care about like the negatives. It, it doesn't bother me, but I'm not invested whatsoever. And I don't think it's like majestic or, or cool. It just is. And it is something- But they from, think it is. But they think it is, but right? It, it is something from Rebels. They are important from Rebels. But- I just never gave a shit. Yeah. All right. Let's move on to the return of Thrawn. Brandon, in a minute, can you tell us newbies like me what we what we absolutely must know about Thrawn? Thrawn was the main character of the best uh, expanded universe books in the 90s that Star Wars ever produced, bar none. The best character, the best books, easily. Uh, that obviously got retconned out and was no longer canon but he did show up in in rebels like season three or four and then became canon and he has since has had canon novels you know re rebooted by the same author essentially he is the ultimate calculating in brilliant tactician strategist he is calm cool collected quiet malice and he knows everything about everything and can study everything to learn what he doesn't know so he is not fucking around and you don't want to get into a chess game with him and he's That's awesome. At, at least in the in the in the non-canon books, he was absolutely ruthless. In the canon books, which is my bit, my one big nitpick, he's he's fucking a good guy. And then, in, but on screen, he's a bad guy. And it's like, ah, come on, guys. In the novels, he's a good guy. What it's do you like, mean by that? He like he's not a bad person. You know, he he's doing his thing and he's doing what he's got to do. But you can tell he's very much not a bad person. He's like helping as many people as he can, like doing the right thing. Oh, wow. But like in Rebels, which again, they're all canon. He's like a straight up villain here, straight up villain. So there's a gulf between like his book right, representation right. on screen. But that's, you know, that's a nitpick. And then just a real quick plot detail point. Am I to understand that all of these star, uh, sorry, all of these storm troopers on his ship were banished with Thrawn for all this time? Or is he, he recruited... There. He wasn't no, there. no, no, not not banished, like transported. Yeah. So all those, so all of those dudes and Thrawn have been on this world for, for years. years. Yeah. Okay, got it. That's got been it. Uh, that's probably been tough. So while I actually really enjoyed the uh, debut of Thrawn, my biggest complaint, 
harkens back to something that you talk about when it comes to Star Wars all the time. And you always talk about the need, and that's why you're so hyped for the Acolyte, the need to leave this 70-year Skywalker stretch. And I feel like Thrawn is the perfect epitome of that. In one moment, as soon as he shows up and as soon as he starts doing his whole like, oh, I'm fucking cold as ice and I'm smart as shit thing. I'm like, (laughs) oh, this guy is sick. He feels like a proper big bad, a legitimate, respectable follow-up to Vader. But then in the next moment, I'm like, wait a minute. Thrawn will be wiped out so quickly that in The Force Awakens 25 years from now, nobody even mentions him. So that feels it's not the fault of the show or the character itself. It's the fault of the franchise that the impact of this character's dramatic weight, I feel, is undercut by what I know about where this story goes. I also just want to say, as it comes to Thrawn, you could obviously see why he had like one or two scenes, right? You could obviously see why Benedict Cumberbatch was so widely fan cast in that role. And I'm usually somebody who like, I'm fine with character actors playing big parts, but he also voices him in Rebel. Right, right. Which I think is dope. Like great for him. He deserves it. He earns it. But the knowledge that I have of where the Star Wars universe goes, I almost wish they cast a big star to sort of counterbalance that feeling. I can understand that. I I do get where you're coming from. And again, it kind of talks to the limitations of a sprawling franchise. But at the end of the day, I'm like, you know, whether we knew the fate or not, we did know the good guys would win in a Star Wars story, just like. Even even after Infinity War, which is dope, I'm like, okay, well, I still think the good guys are going to beat Thanos, you know, come next year. So I do kind of bring that to, to all of this. Like, no, no matter what, no matter what curveballs they threw, no matter what I didn't know about the future of a given, you know, fictional timeline, we fucking know the good guys are going to win. Right, exactly. All right, and then the final one point that thing, I... Sorry, just yeah. one quick thing about Thrawn I, I do want to throw in there. In canon... Thrawn knows both Anakin and Darth Vader. He's met both of those characters and had significant in, significant interactions with them. And that makes for some really, really upcoming, uh, interesting interplay and dynamics when he finally meets Ahsoka for the first time. Yeah. Oh, they've never met before. They've never met before. Oh, shit. See, I didn't know that stuff. That's what I'm talking about. Like, what? So I, I think it'll be very cool because they could have some very interesting conversations about a person that has been an important figure in both their lives. Oh, all right. And then the final thing that I want to touch on when it comes to the Ahsoka and the Mandalorian and sort of where this is all going. Are we headed for a world? Because there have been reports that Lucasfilm is going to give Baloney his own film to wrap this all up. But again, as we've seen through the last five years, that doesn't mean shit. You're famous for saying, like, I will give their word a worth of salt when I actually <laughs> see a fucking trailer. Yeah. So, but I feel like having just met Thrawn, literally having just met him for the first time ever, are we heading to a world where it's Mando and Ahsoka and Baby Yoda and Uncanny Valley Luke Skywalker and all of these random Filoni-verse characters taking on Thrawn and a resurgent empire, newly birthing first order. Like that has to be where this is going. Right. I would be shocked if it wasn't, I wouldn't, I, I I particularly think it's probably going to be like a two part movie where Thrawn's the heavy. Wow. 
Lars Mickelson. Yeah. Mads his brother. In episode six, we obviously have Balin and um, I keep forgetting her name, but she's badass too. But, uh, you know, they're talking about something calling them. They're hinting at a new evil. We know Balin's motivations and strategy are very murky. And we know he wants to break the wheel, but we know he's got like a, a desire to stay on this barren wasteland plant, planet. So I'm assuming that whatever that kind of evil or threat is, is going to be the basis for the adult Ray movie that's been in the works. I think that's, again, their their whole goal is to kind of really integrate the universe into kind of one somewhat streamlined narrative. And I think that would be a good way to do that. And frankly, I, I'm intrigued at the prospect of bringing like an outer galaxy threat to the, to this galaxy, even though there are things I would much rather do than an adult Ray movie, even though I love Ray. Um, so, you know, I, I think that could be the seeds planted for the future movies, but yeah, acolyte all the way. Let's get the hell out of uh, this timeline. <laughs> Now let's take a quick break for my interviews with Rob Savage, the director of The Boogeyman, and Scott Waugh, the director of Expendables 4. Folks, today I am joined by Rob Savage, host, uh, host, director of films such as Host, Dashcam, and his latest project, the boogeyman thank you so much for your time today rob thank you so last month i interviewed andre or vidal who just did the last voyage of the oh yeah and i asked him because this was around the time that the u.s senate had these hearings about aliens being real and i asked him if myths such as aliens are real then Hmm. why can't stuff like vampires be real so i kind of want to pose that same thing to you now that we live in a world where you know these things that we grew up with in the unknown are now being presented to us as hey actually this is real how do you like how do you feel about that as somebody who just made a film about perhaps the most mythic creature that there is yeah it's a weird thing because you know i'm i don't i'm not a, a hugely kind of superstitious person i i i think i'm probably i probably lean on the side of believer when it comes to aliens but um in terms of the supernatural i'm not really uh i'm not really uh, a kind of strong believer in that stuff until i find myself you know alone in the dark and you know and i'm hearing a, a creaky footstep that i can't place and then suddenly i just believe in all of it so there's a there's a rational side of my brain that um there's a rational side of my brain that doesn't want to believe it but as soon as i'm as soon as i'm in fight or flight mode i i believe in all of it the boogeyman and and werewolves and vampires and uh yeah i could i could totally see that being the case do you think that that makes them more scary or less scary i think existing in this space between knowing and and you know knowing that they're real and them being you know a complete fairy tale i think that unknown space is the scariest place to be because it's kind of um it's mostly a construction of our own minds which is the scariest place to be you know the 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 thing that we were trying to really tap into in this movie was that great sense of of audience participation in the way that that movies like Alien or Jaws it kind of allow you to imagine what's there in the darkness or what's there under the surface. And we really wanted to to fill this movie with a lot of darkness and a lot of dark spaces. And you know, like my empty closet there in the background, a lot of places where evil could be lurking. And without there actually being anything there for most of it, but the audience then, you know, fills in a lot of this with their own minds. 
You know, I don't mean to laugh, but I hear you name check Jaws and Alien, and my first thought was, really aimed low there, huh? <laughs> yeah. I think you've got to, I mean, that was one of the, that was one of the ambitions with this movie is to try and, you know, you take a character like the Boogeyman that everyone has an association with. It's one of these characters that, um, you know, it's, it's one of the first, the first characters that we uh, come to understand as children is there lurking in the darkness of our closets and it deserves a great movie. There's been a lot of Boogeyman movies and none of them have been particularly successful. And we wanted to do something that was aiming at being, um, you know, classy and and well made and deserving of uh, deserving of of that title as being the definitive boogeyman movie. You know, I don't even know if it's because of a specific boogeyman fear, but even to this day, I'm 30. I still shut every door in my room when I'm going to oh, bed. <laughs> you've got to, you've got to. They're doorways. I mean, they're doorways. They're doorways here in the physical realm, but they're also doorways in the supernatural mm. realm. Mm. So I looked up the etymology of the word boogeyman, and I was struck by how many languages have a word for it. One that's yeah. become particularly relevant in past years is that of Baba Yaga, thanks to John Wick. So yeah. I'm curious how far and wide across different cultures you researched to hone in and create your version and your take on this character. Yeah, we kind of, we looked at a lot of different um different iterations of, of the creature from across all these different cultures. And it was amazing. Um, there's so many different, uh, so many different kind of fears folded into this one, this one title and this one character. And it, it, we wanted to make, we wanted to make a version of this creature that kind of allowed room for all of those interpretations that wasn't just, um, that wasn't that wasn't kind of stepping on any of those and i know like the kind of the kind of um association of the boogeyman the kind of western association of the boogeyman is 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 a much more kind of humanoid uh uh creature you know a lot a lot of the other boogeyman movies that have come before this one have this kind of like bipedal you know it's boogeyman it's got a long dark coat on and a hat and it's like that's kind of an image that a lot of people have in their head and i wanted this to feel much more animalistic and much more primal and much more um like something that that had been uh, stalking in the darkness since the beginning of time. And we wanted to show enough of this creature that the audience didn't feel shortchanged, but hold enough of it back and suggest, you know, without spoiling it, there's, there's a moment that happens in the finale where you see a kind of hidden dimension to this creature. We wanted to suggest that there's, yeah, we wanted to suggest that there were there were. There were I, would, I literally said to myself, I was like, what the fuck, man? <laughs> <laughs> That's what we were going for. I, I still to this day can't believe we got away with that in a PG thirteen movie. You're you mean yeah yeah yeah. Uh, yeah. So you um you touched on past Boogeyman film and forgive me if I'm wrong, but I could have swore was there a shot that was an homage to the Babadook? Because there is a there there is a shot of the Boogeyman's face that looked just like the character from that film, and I could have swore. Um, I can't remember what shot you were talking about, but probably yes. I had a. Huge, it's when you like, could just faintly see the out the white outline of the smile and the eyes. And oh I was yeah, like, the, it just, smile, the, the smile. The smile was definitely influenced by by Babadook. I had this huge bible of like uh, references for the creature and references for the way that the horror would play out. And the Babadook was, was, was all over that. And, um, so, you know, everyone who was working on the movie from the VFX people to the, to the, um, cinematographer would have this kind of like Bible for the, for the scares and the look of the creature and the, the way that we wanted to light the thing. And, um, 
yeah, Bab- Babadook, Babadook's a huge influence. Which, and speak of the way that, that you shot it and lit it, I thought that that was one of the biggest strengths of uh, the film. So in terms of that goal, I think that you nailed it. Yeah, um, Eli, just shout out to Eli Bourne, the cinematographer who's- uh, There genius. you go. Horror has become a fascinating genre in the age of streaming in regards to the fact that it's one of the most consistently bankable. And yeah. you're someone perfect to talk to about this because your film was actually the reverse of what you usually see and was sent- from streaming to theaters. I'm curious yeah. why you think horror has been able to carve out such a successful niche for itself in these last five years. Or so whereas something like comedy, which sort of is built on the same tenets of that communal feeling mm-hmm. struggles so much. I think, uh, I think people are very anxious right now. I think the world is changing and the world is, is becoming, uh, uh, scarier in a, in a lot of ways and i think there's a catharsis to horror movies that's always been there through through periods of change um i also think it's just one of the most reliable communal experiences while we're still kind of holding on to this um communal experience and 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 you know scratching our heads over what what brings people out you know out of their homes to to go and sit in a dark room together horror when it works when it kind of um really holds an audience in in tension and delivers on scares and uh you know and 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 it, it's 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 one of the it's one of the it's one of the best uh communal experiences you can have to be watching a movie and feel the whole audience reacting in time with you at the same things to feel like the movie is uh playing for a hundred people and you're all experiencing the same thing it's it's one of the reasons we go to the movies is to feel connected to other people is to watch something with a crowd and experience the same uh emotions and horror when it's done well is there's nothing like it i am someone who grew up and i was like i i just i can't do it but as i've gotten older i have a real appreciation for it rob i've got a rep here i'm curious when i looked you up I found online that it said your three favorite horror films of all time are Evil Dead 2, The Innocents, and Lake Mungo. I just want to check if that's right or not. That's, that's pretty much, I mean, it changes all the time, but those are the three pretty consistent ones. Uh, Do you have one that, that you would like to add? Um, 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 you know, I was talking about the Texas Chainsaw Massacre earlier today. Is uh, It's an obvious one, but it's it's one of those movies that every time I go back and rewatch it, it jolts me in a way that no other movie does. I think that movie is viscerally terrifying in a way that nothing else has really touched on. And there hasn't really been a movie like that for a long time. So mm. I'd love to see a bit more of that ferocity enter back into the horror space, you know. I uh, grin because even Texas Chainsaw has tried to remake itself, but it can't do it. Rob, yeah. thank you so much for your time. And you and I are close in age so seeing what you're doing at this age is unbelievable and if they and if they do a boogeyman 2 do me a solid and please kill off natalie (laughs) i will Thank thank you man i want to start with a quick thought experiment when i say the phrase to you 80s action film what's the first that comes to mind and i want to play that same game w- with the 90s lethal weapon uh-huh so for both the 80s and 90s they did so many right so <laughs> yeah yeah i just i think tonally those movies were awesome yeah action was great comedy was funny and they were just i call them coke and a popcorn type of movie and uh, I'm I'm of the mindset of 
our world is dire and dark enough and why pay to see more of it? How about pay to have some escapism and go and smile and enjoy yourself? And that's kind of why I wanted to do Expendables. I just felt like that. That kind of perfectly leads me into my first point. This year, I think there's been two I major. I was leading you into these questions. See how I'm, I'm actually working it for me to interview you. Well, that's the thing. People don't realize that this is a team sport. <laughs> Exactly. All right. Keep going. I love this. So I think that this year there's been two major developments at the box office. The first is that films like Oppenheimer and Barbie, a biopic and a female directed film were wildly successful. Then you have something like Statham's The Meg 2, which also did really well. But then on the other side of that coin, comic book films haven't been the surefire smash hit that they were maybe three, four years ago. So I'm curious what you think these trends mean for traditional action films like yours or traditional sci-fi films like the creator that that just came out and sort of what this means for original, as you put it, popcorn film. I just think, you know, the, the, the one thing that seems to resonate with our audience is... You know, and I know Barbie's not going to lean into this, but Oppenheimer and John Wick and all that's going to really lean into it. It's the idea of realism still, right? And and stories existing uh, in some form of realism. And I feel like there's more ways that the audience nowadays can identify with that and relate to those characters, right? And this is no knock on the superhero movie, but um those are definitely l- stories living in other worlds and and i just think audiences might be you know everything in our ministry goes in cycles we just do <laughs> i wish we didn't but we do and we're in a cycle where that cycle's probably uh starting to lose its lose its luster and we're going to move into you know probably back to the 80s and 90s style action movies again so you can see those are starting to really work again yeah so and then there's the point of like the horror genre has really crafted out a niche in the last few years for huge returns i'm curious if you could see action following that same sort of route you know i think the one thing that you know look i think the thing that's important in cinema is the world goes to the movies so sometimes America is only focused on America, but you have to look at the global box office and the global box office traditionally, when you want to hit those half a billion dollar numbers, predominantly are action movies. Right. You know, okay, so, oh. yeah, because horror doesn't really transcend that far. There's a lot of cultures that won't even embrace that. And comedies get lost in translation with that too. So the only one that doesn't really get what we call lost in translation because mm. action doesn't need dialogue is action. And it's something that's really worked since the eighties around the world. And today it's becoming true pr- proof of movies that are trying to hit above 300 million global predominantly are action movies. Mm. I know it's like, like the old thing, like uh Fury Road could be told with no words and you could still know what's going on. Uh, all right. That was sort of a, a 10,000 foot view of the genre. But now I want to zoom in on you, your film. How do you approach Sly with notes? Not only is he an action legend, 
but he is the original writer and director of this franchise. So I'm curious of sort of the push and pull between how you are able to imprint your own sort of style and voice on this film. I think Sly is a legend, you know, and um, I had such admiration and respect for him. So, and he's a guy that started Expendables. So for me to um, come to him with questions, hey, brother, what do you think you would do here? Or, you know, what do you think of this line, this dialogue? It was always fun because, you know, Sly is very candid about how he feels and you don't have to worry about him lying to you and he's just going to tell it to you like it is. And, um, you know, and I think if you have that mutual respect, it's actually a really enjoyable experience. And truthfully, I really hope I get to direct Sly again because it was a it was an amazing experience. How do you find the right balance in, in tones, right? Because this is a film about macho alpha men, but there's also a comedic, absurdist spin to it all. What's the process of sort of finding that sweet spot and not leaning too far one way? Well, I think that's the whole beauty of Expendables, right? Is it's, you're going to see some really cool action, but you're also going to laugh along the way. And finding those comedic moments within the action is true expendables fashion. It's the, it's kind of the movie of one-liners, you know, mm. kind of back to what the eighties and nineties used to always have those cool, you know, really great liners that Arnold and Sly used to always deliver. And now that's kind of the thing we're always trying to find in expendables is, Hey, what's the line we could come up with right here? You know, and it's, uh, it's always trying to make, you know, when one of them will say something and, I laugh at it, then I'm like, let's go with that. That made me laugh, right? It's it's kind of uh that's kind of the signature of expendables. Is a lot of it done on set or is most of it on the script? Those classic one liners. Some of it's kind of a little bit of both, for sure. There's those that are written in, and then there's those that we definitely ripen on set, find the moment, talk about it, and uh and uh you know bounce them off of each other, you know, until we both kind of giggle and we go, yeah, let's go with that. Speaking of the humor in this film, I want to talk about the comedic strength of Jason Statham, who I think has been using his natural humor for years. And I don't think anybody other than directors have really noticed. So talk to me about how you utilize some of his natural comedy talents. Well, you know, the thing that's fun on what Jason is, look, Jason's funny because he's not trying to be funny. <laughs> I That's know, why yeah. he's funny. Because he's got this great candidness about him. And he's, ex you're right, he's extremely hilarious. But yeah. You're not laughing with him, you're laughing at him. And I think it's different. And it's what makes him so likable. Because, you know, he does things that somehow kind of maybe can appear awkward because he's a, he's just such a man's man, you know, he's a guy you'd want to drink a beer with and the women want to sleep with, you know, and he's just, he's that, he's just that guy. And I think he's got this natural sense of comedy without having to try to play it. Plus, I wonder if just, it's the simple fact that he's British and that they just have that innate sense of dry wit to them. <laughs> Because that's part of it. I mean, he has, his charm is how dry he is. You know, his, his dialogue, right. he can throw off these dry one-liners, and it's really funny. So we kind of touched on this for a bit, but it's on, on my notes, so I just want to give you a chance to expand if you have 
Annie thoughts for a while. There was a concern that the future of this genre would be superhero films. And that was it. And as I touched on that trend, surprisingly, uh, cause I thought that too, right? I thought that this is going to be my life. Now everything is capes and heroes, but I've been surprised by the way that it's sort of shifted back in the last few years. So wh- how do you see the action genre succeeding and growing in the next five to 10 years, especially now that we're in an age of where you can make virtually any set that you want. I think it's, you know, look, I think action movies are always going to succeed as long as the story is strong. You know, I think that's always going to come down to story, story, story. And, you know, when you have a compelling plot line or fun, you know, arc of a character, it's entertaining to watch. And action is better when the story is strong. And it's because you're emotionally involved in the movies. And I feel like, I feel like fun in the cinema is a little bit lost lately and it needs to come back. And, you know, I think COVID is one of the things that really reset the cinematic experience and really changed the entire landscape for cinema. And right now we're still recovering. I don't really know myself exactly where it's going to land, but I do know this. People are very judicious on how they spend their money now and careful of just going to the cinema all the time. They're a little bit more strategic. And I feel like they want to go to the cinema to have fun. It's important. How did you guys land on Megan Fox? Were there auditions? Because the key to her role is obviously having the gumption to seem like she could really hang with the big boys. So I'm just just curious of how she got that part. So I came on to the movie four weeks before production. The original director bowed out and they asked me, they called me immediately, said, can you fly over right now and take over? And so Megan was already on. And I know the studio had worked with her before. And, you know, I was thrilled. I think she's a wonderful actress and she has the, she, she has the gall to keep up with men with that kind of testosterone. So, and she did a great job. So uh, I was pleased that she was, you know, already a part of the casting when I came on. Talk to me more about coming onto it so late. Have you ever done something like that before? What kind of challenges did that present you? Yeah, now it's first time for me. Normally we get 12 weeks to 16 weeks to prep. So I had four and it was extremely challenging, but, you know, they were there to support me as much as, you know, we could get things going. And uh, it was, you know, it was, it was what I call thinking on the spot. You know, we normally you do these elaborate shot lists and you really get prepared for the set. And for me, it was like, really having to show up on the day on the fly and just go, this is what we're doing. And um, there's some liberation to it, which was kind of freeing of really just looking at the set, seeing the scene and really starting to get creative. Um, but there was also some, some uh, trepidation because you're like, man, what are we doing tomorrow? <laughs> yeah, I'm not ready for that yet. You know? So uh, I look, I sometimes perform best under pressure. So uh, it was fine. Well, and there's a, and I know it's not a one to one comp, but there's that thing in sports, right? Where you're playing your best when you're not thinking about it and you're just playing. And then so that that's kind of how I could see yeah. that there. Uh, you you totally skip this one if you want. But were there any members of the cast that you were the most intimidated to meet? And if so, why? Nah, 
None. I've been, I've been, no, I've been very lucky in my my career. You know, I've been around every celebrity you can think of as a stuntman before I moved in to directing, and so it's just been. Uh, it's like uh, the set is a place I'm most comfortable, and it's where I've lived my entire life. I'm 53 now, so it's just a place that's uh, I'm very relaxed in and. I don't care if you're the grip or Sylvester Stallone, I'm gonna treat you the same. It's a place where we all work. And, um, you know, there's actors that I have admirations with, right? Like Sly, like can't knock the dude's career. Guys, I'm juggernaut, created many franchises and a prolific filmmaker. So that, that for me is exciting. I'm not intimidated, I'm excited. Now, because you came on just a month before you guys started shooting, were you involved in any of the conceptualization of the set pieces or were you just there to shoot them? So all the action were, were my concepts when we came in. So we came in and then I basically, you know, what I do on my action movies is I know that, you know, they, the, the writer usually has action written into the script and then I'll basically know where the action starts and then I know where the where it needs to end. And then I'll kind of reimagine all of the stuff in between and find locations to maybe give us new ways to move and jump and fly and blow up throughout the sequence. So you could take the credit for armed dirt bikes on a aircraft carrier. That's all you. Unfortunately, yes, I can. And people were like, thought I was crazy, but they had these motorcycles and they, you know, when the original script was a guy on motorcycles, a little bit of a chase and it stopped. And I was like, man, we could do more than that. Let's do something really cool. Like, a, let's put some guns on these bikes, bro. We have like automatic gunfire on these things and we'll have tracer bullets on there so you can see them where they're going. And then we'll ride through under the ship, above the ship, on the deck. And then we got to do some kind of crazy ass jump. And that's how all of that kind of, kind of spawned and uh, we were lucky we got Robbie Madison to come in to do the big jump for us and get fully inverted on this idea that I had about getting the bike completely upside down to get the guns pointed straight down so in air he could shoot the bad guy as he's flying and and uh it's a funny story because Robbie did it for us five times and it was awesome and I was just like man I just I just wanted to get up more so I walked over to him and uh, he's in front of the ramp. And I was like, hey, man, you think you could do me a favor? And he's like, well, you yeah, think you could just flick it out just a, a little bit more? And like, hmm. I go, I just want you to get kind of inverted. And he kind of smiled at me. And he's like, all right, Scott. You know, so he goes back there. And that's the one that's in the movie, man. He almost crashed. He got so upside down. <laughs> but he, he, he pulled it off. He looked at me like, hey, that's it. I'm like, no, we got it. <laughs> I'm not doing that again. Yeah. Um <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, those are one of the things that I look out for when I watch these type of films, because with scripts, you could there are endless amount of words and you could rewrite things a million new ways. But action set pieces, there is a finite amount of them out there. There are only so many ideas that you can come up with and shoot. So when I see one that surprises me that I've never seen before, that is totally unique. I make note of it. And that and that scene felt totally new to me. And it's hard. You're right. You know, at some point, man, we have uh, we have skinned the cat so many times with action. And it's like, man, how do we do something original and new? It's all been done. And, you know, especially when you even get into fights, it's like you can only punch and kick so many different ways. 
right? Well, but when you have eco UIs, I'm sure that those ways expand exponentially. So I'm I'm so glad that you led me into him. This is an actor who, so your generation grew up with action stars, as you talked about the Slys, the Arnolds, the Bruces. My generation hasn't really had that. I've had, I was born in 93, right? So I had a bit of Arnold, a bit of Sly, a bit of Bruce, but mainly throughout my life, it was Batman, Superman, Spider-Man. But Eco in The Raid, which I'm sure I'm, I'm sure you've seen The Raid 1 and 2, right? Of course, that's how I casted it. He is as, as close as I've come to being like, this dude, I've never seen something like what this dude is doing. So like you just said, I, I don't really have a specific question, more so... Talk to me about bringing him in. Talk to me about finding the limits of what you could do and 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 how you sort of pushed your imagination to fit what he can bring to the table. Well, one of the things when I came in, I said to them, I said, I really want to, I really want to elevate the fights in this franchise. I go, that's the one thing I think we could do, we could do better on. And that's not really better, but do different. You know, the original three were more brawler bar fight type of fights. Jason had some really cool knife stuff that his character is true to and stuff. I was just like, so I came to Jason and I said, hey, I just did this movie with Jackie Chan and I would love to bring his Hong Kong fight team to the party if you'd want to be a part of this movie. And he was like, dude, if you could get them, that would be great. And I was like, 100%. So I made a call to Alan in Hong Kong. I'm like, dude, could you come choreograph all the fights for me? And he was thrilled to come on. And then I said, all right, so we had this character that hadn't been cast yet for the bad guy. And I'm in my mind, I'm like, Jason has to go toe to toe with this character. And it needs to be somebody that the audience needs to believe to kick Jason's ass. At least be head to head, mano a mano, on equal ground and Jason's such a badass who the heck is that gonna be right and I was like and I kept thinking I kept thinking I'm like dude eco UAS that would be cool (laughs) UAS sorry about that and I was like dude that could be amazing so I told the studios like hey you think we get eco UAS that'd be amazing and uh he's like I think we can man so when eco we had a call together and he was super thrilled to come on and then and then what was so fun was designing the fights, showing Alan design them. Then we'd show them to Jason and Eco, and they would have their own, what about this? What about that? And it became this great collaboration. So then you got to, then I got to sit back and watch these two dudes fight. It was yeah. it was a thrill, man, because you know they're both incredible fighters. Talk to me about the weapons that they have. And uh, this is a spoiler warning for whoever might watch this out there, but I've got to ask this because I'm so curious. Spoiler warning, spoiler warning. The weapons that they use towards the end, they're like cop batons, but with pointed edges. Are those real or did you come up with those for the movie? <laughs> so it was, they're, they're, they're around another martial arts weapon. And I was talking to Eco about that because I said, we need to come up with, your weapon because christmas is a knife guy i don't want you to have another knife that just becomes a knife fight but i go acoustically in my head i'm kind of feeling like like police baton so i'm feeling knife against wood 
could acoustically make these really cool rhythmic sounds with you guys fighting. And um, and I go, I think it should be your signature weapon. Then he's the one that showed me the ones that had the point at the end that you can stab people with. And I was That's like, one of the oh, sickest things I've ever seen. It's one of the coolest like, weapons I've ever seen. Then I'm like, then we got to have them like gunslingers. You got to wear them on both hips. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so, and that's, oh, it, yeah. So uh, when they designed the fight around those weapons, because then what was fun with Eco, because he's so incredible, he never worked with those weapons before. But the minute he got them in his hands, all of a sudden you could see his skill level just start to move these weapons. And like, I was like, damn, dude, that was quick. And, yeah. uh, and he was, yeah, terrific with them. Did you get a chance to ask him why the hell him and Gareth Evans have not made a third raid film? Because I'm dying over here. No, I honestly, I haven't, you know, I mean, I'm with you. I think it's a great franchise, man. And it's just fun to watch him do what he did, what, what he does. And, th- and then just one thing on that final set piece, you Chekhov's gunned the hell out of me with that ax. Cause I'm watching Statham go through wave after wave of goon. And I see this sick battle ax on his back and I'm like, when's he going to use this fucking thing? And then finally, bah, and I was like, yes. <laughs> yeah, it was, uh, you know, the battle ax was definitely something that we wanted to carry through and, you know, have hopefully the audience thinking exactly what you're saying of, I know he's going to use that axe, but when is he going to use the axe? And obviously we save it for a, a really fun moment in the movie. Yeah. So was there a particular moment on, on set? I'm talking like real micro where it kind of hits you like, I can't believe this is my job right now. You know, it kind of happened, you know, because I've never come into a franchise. I've, you mm. know, always done original movies. So for me to come into one, having obviously known the franchise, to come in and all of a sudden I'm here and we were doing early on in the film, we were doing the bar scene where they're all there. And I was like, and I had all of them. And it was like, I really was like, oh my God, man, it's like all the expendables. <laughs> this is wild, you know? And all the personalities, it was there was nine, there was nine, nine actors all in the circle. And it was, it was, it was not daunting, but exciting. Cause they, you know, they're each, you know, I had known some of them only by their characters and hadn't known them personally yet. So it was pretty, pretty fun. Were there any from the previous film that you guys tried to bring back that you just couldn't quite seal the deal on or? There was one, there was a timing issue. We had a, we had a schedule conflict with Antonio Banderas mm. and I really wanted to use it, you know, and the script was written and had Antonio's character Galgo in it. And so when he wasn't available, I was like, what a dude, that character is super important. Hey, I really hope it was not for his five minutes in uh, Indiana Jones know. five that he bailed for. <laughs> I, I don't remember what movie it was, but I was like, so I was like, we need to keep that integrity of the script. And then I came up with this idea. I go, what if we make it his son and we have the same characteristics of his dad. And we came up with this character named Galan and we cast casted Jacob Scipio. And that's how that character. There you go. All right. Uh, I got one more for you here and then I will let you go. The film confirms that 50 cent exists in the expendables universe. How does Easy Day feel about this? Does he ever wonder why he looks exactly like one of the most famous rappers on earth? Does that kind of throw him? And the fact that Easy Day likes to play 50 Cent's music? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> like, is he like, wait a minute? Huh. 
Mom, <laughs> do we need to talk about something? The beauty part of that, we originally talked about that moment in the movie of because I was telling the producers, I'm like, you know, we gotta have a 50 cent song. Like we just we have to. And they but you like, break the fourth wall with it. It's not just playing for us, it's playing in the film. <laughs> yes, hundred percent. And I'm like, but that's the brand. Like we can do that. It's expendables, you yes. know. We can have fun. So and I think the audience always laughs and enjoys the fact that we we're we're irreverent in that way. And it reminded me of Smoking the Bandit. And most people have forgotten that movie was before your generation. One of the greatest car chase movies of all time with Hal Needham directing it, Stuntman, but with Burt Reynolds. And there's this wonderful moment that Burt, that Hal Needham, the director, came up to Burt and says, you're going to drive up in your car, in your, in your bandit car, and you're going to pull up. Camera's going to be right here. And I want you to turn look at the camera right in the lens and smile and take off. And he said, Bert's looking at him and goes, Hal, you can't do that. You're breaking the fourth wall. And he says, will you just do it? And, and Hal told me one take up drives Bert. He turns and to mock Hal, he did the look and smiled like and took off. And Hal goes, all right, moving on. And Bert's like, you can't do that, Hal. And he goes, the audience is having fun, Hal. Let them have their fun. And I was like, and I never, never forgot that. Cause I was like, we're there to serve the audience. And the audience comes to Expendables to have fun. Hell man, let's let's go any way and every way we can to accomplish that. God, I can't think of a better place to end than a story about the legendary Burt Reynolds. Thank you so much for your time today. I really enjoyed to have the chance to chat with you and to see. I love seeing people who are just as big of a fans as we are getting to live out those dreams, man. So it was a blast. Yeah, man. Thank you very much, man. And I uh, hope you guys enjoy it. Thank you. Cheers, Scott. How we doing? Alrighty. Thank you to Rob and Scott for joining me. Thank you to Cade as well. You can follow him at Cade underscore Onder and all of his work at comicbook.com. Thank you to my brother Brandon, who you could find at underscore Great Catsby, although he stopped tweeting. He's MIA. He's too busy these days. You could find all of his work over at parrotanalytics.com. Follow myself at Eric underscore Ital and the podcast at Pod. We will be back next week to talk more Ahsoka. Well, actually, no, B is traveling, so maybe not. I do, however, have an interview coming up with Prey director Dan Trachtenberg, so we will drop that in some way, shape, or form. All right, y'all. What? That's <laughs> Go ahead. really cool. No, I'm, yeah, like, I'm yeah, a Dan yeah. Trachtenberg fan, so I'm like, all right, I'll listen to that. Fuck yeah. yeah. <laughs> all right, y'all. We will talk to you soon. Peace.